virtually everything in your house, everything in your car, everything in your office building, everything in a factory, every material made by human beings, almost every material could be replaced by graphene. So the sweater that you're wearing, the glass in the window, the computer that you're working on, the table that we're sitting at, the house that we're sitting in, the, the, an office building downtown that towers 100 stories, all of that could be made out of three-dimensional form of graphene. That's how we would potentially get to removing gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere and sequestering it in useful objects. That's Andrew Himes, Director of Network Orchestration for the Carbon Trifecta. And this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, everybody. It is a pleasure to be back here with you, sharing conversations with changemakers who are curious, compassionate, and courageous about co-creating our desired and emerging future. Today's guest, Andrew Himes, is the changemaker of the week, and maybe the changemaker of the universe if his new initiative called the Carbon Trifecta can actually pull off what it's trying to pull off. We'll get into that in a second. First, if you want to support or become a patron of this podcast, head over to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash emerging future, and you can become a patron there and we can connect. If you would like to come hang out with me. I'm out in the woods restoring a local forest here in Seattle called Chiste Green Space, a 43-acre parcel of parks property. And I'm out there every other weekend. If you want to find information about that, I want to plant some trees, pull some weeds, build some trails, check out chiste.org, C-H-E-A-S-T-Y.org. And just a shout-out to the fraternities over at the University of Washington who have been sending people out in droves recently to come help us with that project. So thank you, UW fraternities. And if you want to check out the notes for the show, go over to lyman.space slash emerging future. That's L-I-M-E-N space slash emerging future you are definitely going to want to check out the show notes for today's episode one to educate yourself and two because your mind is going to be blown by this miracle material called graphene that andrew is going to tell you about and because you need to share this podcast episode with all of your friends and your social networks the one thing that andrew asked of us is that we share this episode so that we can take this initiative, the Carbon Trifecta, which we're going to jump into in one second here. We need to turn this into a real global story. What's at stake here? 
Oh, only our planet. The carbon trifecta is a solution for global warming. It sequesters carbon dioxide, converts it into a miracle material called graphene that we can use to create any product in the world. Enough said. Let's jump into this conversation and... I would love to hear your comments. Andrew would love to hear from you. Um, I hope you enjoy this, and please, please share it. Here is Andrew Himes from the Carbon Trifecta. I thought a good starting point would be um, to talk about your keynote, because I think that really gets to the heart of who you are. Yeah. And and why you're doing what you're doing and also why I think it's going to work. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> so. So do you want to start? Are we, have we yeah, started? Let's, yeah, okay. let's just roll. I mean, we're recording. So okay. um, can you tell me a little bit about the 8th Worldwide Meeting yeah. on Human Values? Right, so this is, a, this is a, a great big meeting that happens down in Mexico. It's been going, this is the 8th year, I guess. And uh, it's... Um, it's called the Worldwide Meeting on Human Values. And in the past, they've had all kinds of really amazing people speaking at it from all over the world. Um, I, I spoke there two and a half years ago, and, and I think, um, you know, out of like, there must have been about 15, 14 or 13 keynote speakers, and three of them had been Nobel Peace Prize laureates or okay. at some point. So it was, um, it was a really interesting event. There were you know, several thousand people in the audience and then a couple hundred thousand people around the world listening to a live uh, live video feed in over a thousand universities, um, especially young people. So that was uh, that was really interesting. Two years ago, I spoke on on compassionate cities. And the question was, was, well, you know, what is it? I was the executive director of the Charter for Compassion International. And the question that um, that I wanted to pose was what is a compassionate city what's a compassionate community it can't just be um, some vaguely nice feelings about other people it can't just be a feeling of pity for somebody who's in trouble for example compassion if if it means anything it has to be objectively measurable it has to be based on actions that you do that make a difference in the world to alleviate suffering and um and uh, so the Compassionate Cities movement was all about how do we know what a compassionate city looks like, you know? And in some sense, um, you know, according to Karen Armstrong, the woman, uh, the amazing writer who founded the Charter for Compassion, a compassionate city is one that's profoundly, deeply uncomfortable. That is not a perfect place in the world. There isn't any such thing as a perfect place in the world. There's suffering everywhere in every city but a compassionate city is one that's acutely aware of the need to work to alleviate suffering in the world and to create a, a more just economy and, and a just society and a, and a world where everybody can thrive. So, so uh, over the, the last uh, couple of years, I've become really, really interested in what does that mean to, to think about a, a compassionate business in a compassionate city? Because I firmly believe that if if um, if there isn't a business case for saving the planet, we probably won't save the planet. Mm -hmm. And and we're, you know, obviously we're uh, we're facing some 
massive challenges with global climate change and and income disparity and and developmental uh, problems around the world. So, so in order to to solve those problems, there has to be a way that business c becomes an ally rather than an opponent of positive social change. So that kind of you know leads up to uh, the talk that I gave this year, which was about you know what is a compassionate business. Um, and I, I began with this idea that th there are at least two uh, really, really significant uh, possible futures. One is a world in which um, you know, population continues to grow and climate change continues to be ever more dire. And uh, the challenges for maintaining a, a sustainable human community on this planet become more and more and more severe. Um, and massive suffering ensues, and vast population dislocation and, and migration, um, especially, um, especially problems felt by the, the least, the least um, 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 economically successful, I guess, on the planet, the places in the, in the world where, where societies are most challenged to provide people with opportunities for education and for economic opportunity and jobs and that that uh, um, that are that support a decent uh, lifestyle uh, are the places that are going to be experiencing the most the most uh, difficulty and pain from global climate change hmm. as well so um, so how do we think about um, how do we how do we think about the future that we want to, to see come into being instead of the one that seems to be just arriving right. on our doorstep. So the other, the other alternative, obviously, is a vision of a planet that, is, that, that has a sustainable global human community, a sustainable global economy, and a flourishing uh, set of massive opportunities for people to find, uh, to, to find the, the world that they want to live in and that we all want to live in together. And... Uh, so that's kind of the, the heart of of the talk. And you came, part of the speech, you mentioned this theory that you came up with, with the grand unified theory of compassion. Right, yeah. Which I thought was a really, a really simplified version of this complex way forward. You know, yeah. like you're saying, this is, this is the alternative and this is the formula for it. So can you talk about right. that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I've actually been kind of, trying to think about this, you know, how do you, it seems to me that compassion, as I said a minute ago, it, it, it can't just be about, um, you know, be, trying to be nice to people mm -hmm. or, or about momentary kindness to an individual. It has to be, a, there has to be a systemic solution that creates a, a compassionate world, right? So if there is a this systemic solution, then we have to be able to characterize it in the form of a uh, of a scientific um, uh, theorem, I guess mm -hmm. you know. So the uh, after a lot of thought and a lot of revision, I came up with um, what I thought was uh, kind of a description of the general theory of compassion. And the the general theory goes like this: It starts with human awareness, and by awareness, I mean our our awareness of our profound interconnection with all other beings on this planet. Our, our interconnection with other communities, with people who don't look like us, as well as people who do, uh, with people from other socioeconomic backgrounds, other cultural backgrounds, um, citizens of other countries. Uh, 
So awareness of our profound interconnection with each other. Um, times, compassion, and by compassion, as I said a minute ago, I mean um, action, not a feeling, but action to alleviate the suffering of others. And uh, so compassion, um, if, you, if you think about where the word itself came from, um, in the original Greek, Greek uh, the root of the word meant essentially to suffer together with another human being. Um, and it's not that we, in order to act compassionately, we all need to be in an extraordinary pain ourselves. It's that if you identify with the suffering of another, truly identify with the suffering of another, then you are compelled by your own identity, by your own being, to take action on their behalf because you see that they are, they are your brother, your sister. So compassion times awareness. And the third, um, the third element of the equation is the network effect, right? Essentially, you know, the, you know, the, in, especially in the last 20 or so years after the, the advent of the World Wide Web and the adoption of the internet um, around the world as a principal way of communicating with others and collaborating with others and connecting to markets and so on, that um, we've, come, we've become acutely aware of the power of networks in our lives to enable us to do things that we couldn't have done before. And so um, the, you know, it, the network effect is essentially if you take a thousand people, if they're all acting in, in, uh, even in unison but separately, they're nowhere near as powerful as if they're acting together as part of a network and sharing ideas and sharing passion and sharing um, sharing knowledge and sharing resources. So a network can be incredibly powerful at creating social change, not necessarily positive social change, as mm -hmm. you know we've witnessed uh, in lots of examples that I won't go into. But but um, but social change is far more. Um, it's it's far more. Uh, it's far more more. We we are far more capable of of uh, creating social change that matters and there's lasting if we're acting together. So awareness times compassion times network equals uh, the final character in the equation is F, flourishing, a flourishing planet, a flourishing human community. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah and I think you can, you can take that equation and, and you can basically apply it to any endeavor that's trying to do social change. And I love it, I love that there's an opportunity because of the web mm -hmm. to create it, to, right. to create social change. Like without that network, um, there's, there's, it becomes somewhat hopeless. Well, yeah, it's just like you've got a big idea and you want to do something good in the world, but without your network, what are you capable of accomplishing? Mm -hmm. Not a whole lot. So, so how was that message received in Mexico? Well, it was great. It was. Uh, I think um, I think you know it it I my experience was that that everybody that I talked to um, um, said and thought my gosh that's exactly right you know uh, that really kind of sums up what I've been trying to reach for for a long time the day after um, after my talk down there um, they had invited me to the University of uh, Techno I think what was the name of it Technologia 
bidet or something like that. I can't remember the name, but um, I did a, a day-long workshop on business and compassion. Oh, wow. And it was uh, with two other people, and uh, it was completely packed and extremely lively. Um, it was one of the best workshops I've ever been in uh, because it seemed like you know every single person in the workshop had a lot to say, and all of them said it. Sometimes at the same time, you, know, mm -hmm. you, had, you, you sometimes had like five or eight people talking all at the same time. And people, we did a, an exercise we called popcorn, you know, when, when, where you say, um, you, know, um, you know, here's a question or, a, or an issue or, or, uh, or, or something to, you know, an opportunity to share your thoughts about it. So we did popcorn, which meant everybody just kind of popped up and down, um, you know, for 20 minutes. Um, expressing a very short um, response or or a, or a really critical idea that had had occurred to them um, and there was this kind of people at the workshop were from they were business leaders and they were business professors business students and government officials and um, and everybody um, kind of walked out of the room feeling this like this buzz of excitement you know what can we do what can we do was uh, were most of the people in attendance from Mexico um, I would say probably 90% of them yeah. from Mexico. Many, many, many of the speakers were from all over, from Europe, from Latin America, from the United States. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, in your speech, you mentioned, like, the different businesses who are operating compassionately, yeah. and, and there yeah. were a lot of examples from Mexico. Yeah. yeah. More so than the U.S. Yeah. Well, it you know, one of the things that I talked about was uh, – this project called Aim to Flourish, which mm -hmm. is hosted at the at Case Western Reserve University, um, there are, you know, I I'm guessing that lots of people hearing this um, this uh, podcast would have heard of the Global Goals for Sustainable Development, um, issued at the United Nations, signed up um, to by something like 180 countries, and these uh, Global Goals for Sustainable Development. I think I'm not sure. I think that there were about 20 of them or so. Um, but they were on every aspect of, of human society and the global economy. Um, they were all about how do we reduce poverty while um, facing the consequences of global climate change and mitigating climate change itself. And uh, there are 600 or so um, um, business schools around the world uh, that are part of uh, global collaboration uh, who have signed on to the global goals and who said, we will integrate the global goals for sustainable development into our curricula in our business school. So Aim to Flourish is um, it's an invitation for business school professors and students to go out and interview uh, business leaders and companies that are doing amazing things connected with um, you know, poverty alleviation or climate change mitigation or or new technologies um, that enable um, solutions to to uh, to, to uh, be implemented that we didn't imagine before, and uh, um, and it's so it's it's also it's also about the role of business in creating a positive social impact, especially in the developing world. So there are now hundreds of stories on aimtoflourish.com, uh, stories uh, written by um, these are. Um, investigative reports or stories written by business school students uh, being um, 
supported and encouraged and crit critiqued by professors about individual businesses. And it turns out, um, in my research for this for this talk, I discovered that that there are far more companies in the country of Mexico that have endorsed the global goals for sustainable development and are consciously working to create a compassionate society, far more than in the United States, which has a far larger economy with far more companies mm. in it. And I thought, um, you know, they were. I pointed that out in my talk, and they were really happy to hear that Mexico was leading the United yeah. States in a, in a key area of leadership. What do you think is going on there? Do you think do you think that we're just headstrong in the way that we operate business? I think that the, I think that the United States has a very particular and 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 large uh, challenge. It's because the United States and, and uh, the U.S. Uh, economy has such a massive impact on the world. We have a natural tendency to think that we're kind of at the center of things and that um, other people should be thinking about how they connect with us or integrate with us. So it's an egocentric right. approach to business. Yeah, and I, I think that is true. It's I'm not trying to be critical or right. negative about American business. I think it's kind of a natural tendency. Um, so in some ways, you know the i think it's it's generally true i i i guess i'll i'll make this as a a general um conclusion i think it's generally true that people who have more power than others tend to know less about the, about the other side hmm. people who have less power than others know more about the opposite side so i personally i think that you know women probably know more about men than men know about women i think that people of color probably know more about white folks than people than, than white folks know about people of color. Um, it's just a natural human tendency That's to interesting. be kind of interested or understand, um, to, to, to need to know about the folks who have more power than you in, a, in, a, in any system. So I think the United States, um, we have to be, we have to work a little bit harder in our country to be conscious of our impact on the world and the ways in which um, we can help to support the development of a, of a healthy, flourishing global economy. Mm -hmm. Well, do you want to talk about changing the economy yeah. for good? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there should be like a drum roll or something. All right. For, we'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. Let's, let's talk about... The carbon, the carbon tri trifecta. The carbon trifecta. The carbon trifecta. Yeah. Right. Can, can you give? Um, I want to get into some of the specifics. Yeah. But can can you start and just set the stage um, for what you're talking about? Get a broad overview, and then we'll get into some of the specifics about yeah. the components. Good. So several years ago, um, so there's a, a business newsletter that goes out to many tens of thousands, probably of. Of, uh, of business leaders. It's called Strategic News Service. It was started a good number of years ago by Mark Anderson. And, and, uh, they, and there's an annual conference of business leaders attached to the newsletter. It's probably one of the most um, significant and exciting conferences um, and somewhat exclusive uh, conferences uh, of business leaders. It's pretty expensive. I saw it. I was yeah, like, oh, I want to go to this. Wait a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 
it's a, it costs a lot of money to yeah. attend a three-day conference. Um, so I haven't been to this conference in a lot of years. <laughs> but um, several years ago, uh, Mark uh, called together at that conference a group of business leaders. Um, so these were technologists and scientists and uh, corporate leaders. Um, he, I think they, they called it the uh, CTO challenge, the Corporate um, technology, technology Officer Challenge. So the challenge was, what's the most significant uh, problem facing the global economy and the Earth's population? And then, uh, so this is probably a problem that everybody thinks is almost insolvable. And what would a solution be? So get some smart people in a room for a few days and come out with a solution. So several years ago, this problem was posed. The problem uh, that they decided was the significant one facing the economy and human society on the planet Earth was CO2 in the atmosphere, carbon in the atmosphere produced by human activity over many years. Um, um, you know, we're, we're now, as of October of last year, up over 400 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's above the level that scientists have said is extremely problematic for um, in creating global climate change and close to um, close to what would provoke an, an almost unstoppable runaway freight train of, of climate change and rising global temperatures. So the solution they came up with was, well, we have to get CO2 out of the atmosphere and we have to to prevent more CO2 from going into the atmosphere. The problem is that, that um, something like 36.4 uh, gigatons or billion tons of CO2 is pumped into the atmosphere every single year. And until last year, that amount has been increasing every year. Um, um, we're talking about caused um, CO2 uh, emissions caused by human activity, by industrial activity, and so on. Okay. So how do you stop CO2 from going to the atmosphere? How do you pull it back out of the atmosphere? In order to do so successfully, my, my, my guess is, and this is an alliance or in alignment with the carbon trifecta idea, there has to be a strong business motive right. to do that. Uh, otherwise, it just won't happen. You, it's not going to happen that people will individually stop doing things that are damaging the environment just because they're trying to be nice to the world. That hasn't worked up until now. So, um, so the carbon, idea of the carbon trifecta is grab CO2, um, turn it with the aid of a new technology into graphene, a material that was just discovered several years ago and has amazing properties and is very valuable as a commodity or as a, as a material that goes into many other commodities and then um, make use of that graphene to make new things with the aid of 3D printing or additive manufacture. Right, so let's break that down a yep. little bit, right? So, so there's a, a company called John uh, called uh, Carbon Technologies that has invented uh, a new process for creating graphene. What is graphene? It's um, it's in some ways the most unusual and potentially most valuable material ever discovered on Earth. It's a two-dimensional lattice of carbon atoms, which 
made into a material that you can put into some object that you buy, um, which is lighter by a very, very large margin than any other material. It's, it's two to 300 times as strong as steel. It's about 100 times uh, more conductive of electrical energy than copper is, and it's far uh, more conductive of heat uh, than any other material. So what does that mean? It means that, that um, virtually everything in your house, everything in your car, everything in your office building, everything in a factory, every material made by human beings, almost every material could be replaced by graphene. So the sweater that you're wearing, the glass in the window, the computer that you're working on, the table that we're sitting at, the house that we're sitting in, the, the, an office building downtown that towers 100 stories, all of that could be made out of three-dimensional form of graphene. That's how we would potentially get to removing gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere and sequestering it in useful objects. So the, the problem with sequestering carbon, so sequestering means you grab carbon and you put it in a material object or you keep it out of the atmosphere in some way. Most carbon sequestration on our planet is in the form of trees and in the form of jungles and okay. the form of plants, right? That's where most carbon is sequestered. Um, so carbon's taken, uh, or rather trees take in carbon, carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and, and that becomes part of the tree. Um, to <clears throat> one, of the, um, one of the most important sources of, of CO2 in the atmosphere is the CO2 that's, that is emitted from a coal-fired generating plant mm -hmm. or from an, a gas-fired generating plant. Yeah, or smokestacks. Just, smokestacks oh, generally. Yeah. Uh, manufacturing, um, manufacturing smokestacks uh, push a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. So point source CO2 emissions is a massive, massive problem. Mm -hmm. And it becomes more and more of a problem um, every day that goes by as the climate ch changes, as right. the uh, global temperature warms, as the um, ice melts in the Arctic and the Antarctic, um, more and more, um, more and more, um, uh, more and more CO2 is captured by the atmosphere. Okay. As the Arctic tundra melts, uh, methane gas is released in massive quantities, and that goes into the atmosphere. So how do we get um, methane and CO2 out of the atmosphere, do mm -hmm. something useful for, with it that would be profitable? Up until now, uh, most um, coal-fired generating plants, the companies that run them, resist... Um, resist uh, capturing carbon. It's called capt uh, carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. The technologies, there are about 20 different ways to do it. The technologies have been developed over the last, really, 80 years. Okay. However, it's not done because it's a cost center for them. It goes right to their bottom line. Right. And they don't want to spend money on it. There's no benefit for them to do it. There's no benefit for them to do it. So if you turn it, turn CO2 from being an existential threat to the human species to being a potentially very valuable um, material that they could, um, that they could you know, put out onto the graphene market and, and sell, suddenly you change the equation. Right. Okay. So 
we're taking CO2 that's causing global warming and ocean acidification. Mm -hmm. We're converting it into graphene, this miracle material that can build anything you pretty much can yeah. um, think of. And it's and it has all of these amazing qualities right. that I want to get into in more detail right. as well. And it, it's a business case for all of these industries that are actually right. pumping out the, the, the carbon right. dioxide because now all of a sudden they can get a return. Well, all, potentially, yes. So there, there are a series of challenges connected with this. Okay. So, um, you know, one, one question that you haven't asked me is, well, if this makes so much sense, why isn't everybody already doing it, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and part of the reason is that graphene is relatively new in our consciousness. Graphene was discovered by two scientists in the UK in 2004, isolated for the first time. And the, the way, um, there are now a good number of ways to make graphene. Much of it is um, by taking a material like um, like graphite. Graphite, which you can dig in a graph out of a graphite mine, is essentially um, a whole big pile of jumbled up layers of graphene. Mm -hmm. So if you can, if you can um, exfoliate graphene, um, often using a, a process that uses a lot of energy and is itself toxic, you know, a, 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 uh, a furnace that you heat to 900 degrees centigrade and then um, and use a, a toxic chemical to aid the process of separating the graphite and you end up with a pile of graphene. But it's very expensive and uh, uses a lot of energy and so graphene is very, very valuable. It's hard to get, right? So. In order to make this at all possible, you have to um, make it inexpensive to produce. Right. Right. So there are, it, it is getting less expensive to produce. People are uh, uh, beginning to find other ways to produce graphine, graph, uh, graphene, but, um, but it's still quite expensive. So uh, you, you need, some, you need the, a, a method of converting CO2 to graphene that takes a lot less money and a lot less energy and makes it actually profitable uh, to build. And this. this is the company Graphene Technologies who has a, a technology that can do this more affordably? They've, they've, yes. So okay. th they're predicting that you could probably um, create a, a kilogram of graphene for about five bucks. And graphene is so strong and so light and has so many properties uh, that would be helpful that um, with five kilograms of graphene, um, you could do a whole lot with that graphene uh, by using it purely as graphene in a three-dimensional form or um, using it in a, in a, um, in a, as, a, as an additive to a polymer that has other properties of strength and lightness. Um, you could you know, mix graphene with uh, carbon fiber, for example, or mm -hmm. you could mix it with any, any number of, of plastics that have other properties. Um, graphene is already being used today to create um, um, extraordinary systems for filtering seawater and turning it in inexpensively into fresh water. So it's a water filter so too. It's potentially a it's, it's a, it is a water filter potentially uh, because um, the, the one-dimensional lattice of carbon atoms that makes up graphene is the best conceivable filter for water. It's actually such a good filter that um, you have to disperse graphene in another substance 
um, in order to make a fa an effective filter because otherwise the filter would get jammed up immediately by mm. all of the impurities. But yes, you could, you, you could potentially use graphene to turn millions of gallons of seawater into pure fresh water. Um, and, and that technology is being, being worked on today. Okay, so there, you said there's about 20 ways to get yeah. graphene. Right. Um, so what's the most efficient one? Like what's the game changer that, that is going to make this available? Right. So um, up until now, one of the most interesting or inexpensive ways that I've heard of to make graphene is, um, is uh, there's a scientist at a, a laboratory in the U.K., who's developed what she calls a graphene factory that uses methane from garbage dumps okay. that they capture at garbage dumps. Yeah. Um, and uh, they can create a couple of tons of graphene in a year. Uh, but we need something that can, can create a lot more graphene than that and a, at a much more inexpensive uh, rate. So our idea is that this process of using CO2, converting CO2 to, to graphene, um, is the way to do it, and widely and very inexpensively licensing, licensing that technology um, would be the key. Right. So the, the price has to be uh, probably cheaper than $5 a kilogram, and it has to be very uh, widely used because, there's, um, it's a, because it's a less expensive way to do carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. So um, um, one of the first steps in the, in the initiative of the carbon trifecta would be to create um, a pilot project, you know, find a, a coal-fired generating plant, uh, partner that coal-fired generating plant with a magnesium plant. Uh, magnesium is a, a chemical catalyst used to, in the process to split the, car the CO2 uh, molecule and, and to reduce it to, the, um, to build um, graphene from the atomic level up. Okay. So um, um, what we need to do is demonstrate in a, in a not, not just in a laboratory, but in a real power plant. Here's how you make it. Uh, here's the technology. The technology is available, and it's, it's very inexpensive. And here's what you're able to do with that. And we hope that we'll be able to do that within the next year or so. Right, because you, you're, you're up against a, a ticking time clock. Yeah, it but, has to happen big and fast. Yeah. And and one of the arguments is is that like clean energy isn't isn't evolving or, um, you know, coming on the market fast enough to reduce the amount right. of carbon in the atmosphere that's that's gonna get that's gonna prevent us from getting right. to that stage where there's really kind of like this um, cascading effect right. Right. Uh, that causes all these changes. So. Um, I mean, I'm, I've got these mental images of what this looks like. So, do you actually like put a lid on top of the smokestack, and then you're preventing like the the emissions from this power plant in into mm -hmm. you know some sort of lid that? Yeah. Well, you've got a um, you've got a way of of uh, ca literally capping the smokestack, okay. and then separating the CO two in the emissions from any other emissions, and then putting the CO2 in a, in a, um, in a container of some yes. kind and then um, adding, um, adding a, a little bit of magnesium to the CO2 and, and producing graphene. So uh, this is not an unknown um, phenomenon. As okay. a matter of fact, if you look on, you know, go to YouTube and type in um, 
CO2 magnesium interaction. And what you'll end up with is like a thousand thousand videos of high school students, <laughs> you know. And what they're doing is here's a block of uh, here's a block of uh, of uh, CO of of dry ice, and here's some magnesium, and and put these two physical things together, and stand back because it's the pro the process that you're setting off actually produces a little bit of energy and there's kind of a little bit of uh, like flaming going on and uh, and when you open up the container what you've got is a little pile of carbon ash wow right so um, so it's 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 literally it's very very easy using you know very easily um, available materials to demonstrate that this chemical reaction works well and you you start with co2 and you use a little bit of magnesium as the catalyst, you end up with a pile of carbon. You don't have carbon, but not quite yet graphene. Right. So we need a controlled process to activate the graphene in a specific way um, in order to um, produce real graphene from that interaction. But the result of the interaction is a magnesium oxide, which can then be converted easily back into magnesium. So you're just recycling the magnesium and it's a zero carbon footprint process. Great. It doesn't take any energy. It produces a little tiny bit of energy. All the materials are recyclable. The graphene itself is recyclable, as a matter of fact. Wow. If you built a bicycle out of graphene and you got tired of using the bicycle, you could grind up the bicycle and turn it into a chair. Wow. Well, you, you, you can just start seeing like a, a different world. Yeah, it's like it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and and if you can if the technology gets to the point where, you know, everybody can have one of these you know, converters. Yeah. You know? I mean, you you could cap your car, right? Yeah, I I can imagine and put then, it on the tailpipe of your car yeah. and instead of uh, producing pollution, you're producing a little bit of graphene, which you could then take down to the sell on a market somewhere on a graphene market. It's um, the 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 interesting thing about this is that when you start following the trails of yeah. how one uh, one change in a technology um, or in a manufacturing technology leads to another change in a social fabric needs leads to another change in a cultural reality, um, the implications are really large and potentially dangerous as well. For example, um, additive manufacturing just by itself is a disruptive technology. 3D printing mm -hmm. is a disruptive technology. Um, it's, 3D printing has been around for a long time. Actually, the technology was first invented in some way in the early 80s. Really? But, um, but up until the last few years, 3D printing has mainly been used for prototyping mm -hmm. um, or for making toys. You know, and you, you can buy a 3D printer for you know $280 today mm -hmm. on Amazon, and and um, and find a thousand um, open source uh, files on the internet that will allow you to print little doodads. Right. So that's kind of neat, but increasingly um, it's being used by you know big companies like Boeing and Ford Motor Company um, and General Electric to make things that go into end end use products mm -hmm. into commodities. Um, and when you think about it, that that potential changes the entire global economy. Absolutely. Right? 
So the, there are estimates that um, there's a great book about the the massive dis, it, the, it's it's the title of the book is actually the great disruption, and it's about the the uh, technology of 3D printing. It came out back in in October of this past year. Okay. And um, in that book, um, two people who've been around the world of 3D printing for many years are interviewing people throughout the 3D printing industry and. And uh, lots of people in, in companies like the three that I mentioned, and they're estimating that um, that when 3D uh, printing or additive manufacturing man, uh, matures as a technology and is fully used to its capacity, that up to 50% of global trade could go away. Wow! Right, because if you can, if you if you've got a machine in a building in Seattle that can manufacture a part or a complete product, um, you don't have to import that product from China or Germany or wherever. So suddenly you've potentially got millions of people out of work. So um, on the one hand, a, a much richer lifestyle. On the, on the one hand, a, a, great, um, a great boon to humanity because we can make all kinds of things in a less expensive way, uh, much more innovatively, much more productively. On the other hand, massive shifts in the global economy. Mm -hmm. And how do you manage those shifts so that you're moving all of humanity toward this flourishing, sustainable um, global economy that, that works for everybody mm -hmm. instead of just for a few? Well, it's interesting if you think about, like, in, in this new world, you can essentially produce whatever you need with a, a 3D printer. So right. it's almost like, what what are you working for? If you can create everything, you know, basically out of the air. Yeah, so this leads us toward, I think, toward a post-capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. And we're not sure what that means, you know. There, there are, um, I think that there, is, there are lots and lots of people in the world today who are starting to think about, well, what is the economy that comes after capitalism? You know, it's, it's clearly not state socialism, I think, you know, uh, but it's a, it's a different economy that, that, um, that gives human beings um, generally much more ability to control their own lives, much more ability to, um, to do things uh, that... Um, to engage in rich cultural interactions, um, um, to uh, to share uh, to share things in the world instead of you know all needing to own a car individually, for example, or a house um, even individually. So the the sharing economy is part. Uh, it's it's something of a. Um, it's in some ways a model of the future. I think mm -hmm. you know it's it's a. It's a notion of what that post-capitalist economy might look like, um, but it's uh, you know I I'm not sure you know how to how to characterize what that economy is going to be other than to say it it'll be very different from what we're what we're living through right now or part of right now. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was talking to Joe Brewer, he he said um, having to work to live is a form of slavery. And I thought that was a pretty f profound statement. You know, and he's, and he's talking about the economic structure that we're, yeah. we're living in, like you have to, 
you know, go to work and make, you know, mm-hmm. bring in an income. But what if there's what if there's a world where you don't have to do that? Yeah. What does so, that look like? Right. Well, how do you get to that world without going through an enormous amount of pain? Also, mm-hmm. you know, one of the one of the challenges is is um, if uh, uh, things are very inexpensive, additive manufacturing is cleaner and more economical, and so on can create products in a much more productive way than mm-hmm. than in the past. Um, you don't need as many people to work on a machine, for example. What does that mean? Well, well, one of the things that it means is that people aren't getting paid potentially a wage and don't have money, therefore, to buy products, which is, um, it's almost, a, um, it's an arrow um, pointed right at the heart of the capitalist economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, questions like, a, you know, the idea of a guaranteed annual income for every human being on Earth provided by a far more productive global economy is potentially part of the, part of the answer. Um, and today, the, that idea sounds very, very radical, but... Ten years from now, it may not be radical at all. You know, I, one of the uh, um, this this is a, similar to the kind of argument argument that is now being made about the need for a fifteen dollar hour, fifteen dollar an hour um, minimum, a, wage. minimum wage, yeah. right? Um, one of the in in the early days of of that movement, like you know, eight or nine years ago, when people were talking about uh, raising the minimum wage, it was mainly a social justice argument. It was um, that we want to uh, give, um, we want to give everybody an equal chance to, um, to um, earn a decent living and be able to support their families. So that's a social justice argument. It's about equality. It's about in- income, income inequality as well. But um, that was always an argument that didn't get very far especially among business people, until the argument changed. And the people who were advocating for a $15 an hour minimum wage said, actually, the real problem is that, is that if you want to salvage the global economy, if you want to salvage the capitalist economy, you have to have people who have dollars in their pocket who will buy things with those dollars. And people who are at the lower end of the economic spectrum spend a lo- much larger percentage of their income on products. Mm-hmm. So a thriving capitalist economy re- relies on people getting sufficient income to buy things. So, um, you know, that's part of the issue here as well. It's it's how do you make sure that we have a thriving global economy if nobody has any jobs, right? right? Because they've been laid off due to you know, economic dislocation, technological innovation, um, robotization of, of uh, factory jobs and so on. Mm-hmm. It's also one of the, you know, if you look at the last few months um, with, uh, you know, the, with the election in November, one of the reasons that Trump was elected, I'm, I'm, I feel confident, is that some people who felt that they had been dislocated or, or disenfranchised by the economy um, we're feeling a sense of real desperation and a lack of hope and and looked out for what um, what they were told was potentially a savior um, and obviously that that was a fraud but 
Um, but the real problem was the underlying economic inequality and the lack of opportunity for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like that there's going to be there. There's a way forward, but there's going to be a lot of disruption yeah. along the way. Yeah, and well, it it makes me think about going back to your motto of of compassion, like keeping that at the heart of the movement. Yeah. Um, because you need people to be aware of of the issue. Mm-hmm. You need people yeah. to be aware of the bigger scales of changes that are happening. Right. Um, and understand that, and not not be so narrow focused in their in their understanding yeah. of the way that we're working, we're related to each right, other. Right. So there's this interrelatedness. If if we can raise the awareness there, and then produce action that is compassionate. Right. While everything is being disrupted. Well, that this that brings us back to where we started, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It's like, if, well, you know, the a core part of the tr- carbon trifecta is you're a business person, you want to make a profit, you want to be successful financially, so um, con- convert CO2 into graphene instead of sending it into the atmosphere. And, and that gives you a profit motive for saving the planet. Well, if that's all it is, then it actually doesn't lead toward health. Mm-hmm. All by itself, if you're only operating according to an economic motive, it doesn't lead toward health. It's that, it's that, um, it's that notion of what can help make your business successful connected with your awareness of your interconnection with all of the all the other human beings on this planet and your own personal inter- identifying your own personal interest as being consistent with or coherent with the needs of the whole right mm-hmm. so this is a really interesting contradiction for me you know and i i call it a contradiction because um on on the one hand what we're saying is you know the carbon trifecta there shouldn't be anybody on the planet who feels threatened by this right it's a really great idea um it's about saving the planet and creating a healthy world for all of us to live in while making it possible for business people business leaders to be part of this movement for social change Mm -hmm. that is also a movement for economic change so um it sh- you know if it works it shouldn't be controversial in that sense it shouldn't be um, it shouldn't uh, evoke immediate opposition from someone who feels that they're being threatened on the other hand it's potentially either a way to divide us and um, and make make us all more dysfunctional or it's a way that we can all come together around a global vision of a world that works for everybody mm-hmm. Well, and I noticed too that the tri- the carbon trifecta is a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I was thinking about that. Like that stuck out to me when I was looking at it because if you think about this idea, there could be a massive amount of you know profit in it. Yeah. And and you're starting this from a nonprofit perspective. Yeah. Can you talk about why? Yeah, because it's fundamentally about the health of the planet. It's fundamentally, a, you know, the matter of fact, the, 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 the guy who actually invented the process of, of uh, converting CO2 to graphene, he did so, um, he said at the very beginning, years ago, because he was concerned about global climate change. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about 
making that technology available now, um, uh, we're talking about an open source effort to collectively um, alter the global economy so that it, it works, right? So, um, so it does start as a nonprofit organization. And I'm also convinced that, that these massive technological and, and economic um, shifts that are taking place right now, that we're part of right now, um, partly in, in response to the evolution of technology and the evolution of, of business models, but also um, um, massively accelerated by the challenge of global climate change. Um, we're also facing a period in which there will be enormous wealth created mm-hmm. by um, the, the need to pivot the global economy to a sustainable model. That's not a bad thing. The, the, um, the bad thing is not the profits that people will make. The, the, the challenge is to make those profits a source of wealth and benefit for the entire society right. and not for a tiny handful of people. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, so profit in, a, in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, any business that doesn't create more value than is than is invested into it uh, ought to fail, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. So um, and we're even thinking nowadays, I think, much more uh, comprehensively and in an integrated way about the role of nonprofit organizations as social enterprises that create value for the create social value for the whole for the whole society that we're part of. So the Carbon Trifecta is a nonprofit organization and it'll remain this this organization will remain a nonprofit organization. But in order to be successful, it has to be a collaboration of lots and lots of institutions worldwide, including businesses and government agencies and research laboratories supported by both private money and public money. Um, it has to be a sharing of information based on the principles of open source. And, um, and if we set out to do that and do it comprehensively and well, and if the technology's what we think it is, then this project can have an, an enormous impact in the world. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the specific qualities of graphene because I want to make sure that people understand like the that this is a a miracle material. Right. So can can we can we just run through the list of these and yeah. um, Because well, you've been doing a lot of research here. (laughs) Why don't you go through the list and then I can jump in? Okay. Well, when you're talking about a material, you know that that is going to actually transform the world, that you right. can build anything out right. of. It's like, what are we talking about? And what, what is graphene? And, it, and it's super flexible right. as a material, but yeah. it's also super strong. Right, yeah. So it, it's like you can stretch it like 20% right. be, beyond its original size. Right. Um, but it's also it has this ability to be like a, you can conduct things through it. So right. so you can have essentially like your phone can be made of graphene, but it can also be bendable. Right. So like your phone could actually just be like a giant like wristband. Yeah, that is actually true. Yeah, yeah. So so um, 
Yeah, it's almost you know it's it's almost hard to start hard to know how to start start or stop talking about graphene. <laughs> it is so amazing. It's like magic. It sounds like science fiction when you tell somebody about it mm -hmm. for the first time. But um, but it is true that you could um, you could make a battery, for example, mm -hmm. because of its conductive properties and because it's of its uh, of of uh, its ability to conduct electricity better than anything else by by far. You could potentially make a, a battery to run your cell phone that you could recharge within a few seconds and that would last for a whole week. You can make this. Right? You can make this, <laughs> right. There are people working on, on graphene-aided uh, lithium-ion batteries right now that would have, you know, uh, lithium, or excuse me, the, 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 um, um, the way that you'd use uh, graphene in a battery would be on on the poles of the battery, uh, which make up, you know, like 20% of its weight or something like that. Okay. And so you could actually make a battery that would be far more conductive and, and, uh, and because it conducts electricity so well, it would recharge the battery much, much faster. Um, you could, it is transparent. So you could literally make, you know, a window out of it. The difference is that the window would be thinner and lighter by far than the glass window that we're looking at of right mm -hmm. now. And it would be utterly unbreakable. It would be really, really hard to break that window. It would be hard to fire a bullet through a graphene uh, constructed window because it's such a powerfully, it's such a, such a strong material. But then you can also, it, you can also have the window be like a screen too right so you could run like yeah you um i don't know if you want to have like uh you want to know what temperature it is outside so yeah. it, it'll have the number of you oh know, yeah you yeah know, yeah yeah it'd it's be, it's 42 degrees outside the and there's a number that says and it says 42 dollars uh, 40 degrees in the and uh what's the uh what's the percentage of water in the air and or the humidity and and uh, and it's you know it's because it's a um, it's all, graphene is potentially a, an extraordinary sensor of other things happening in the in uh, in the world around you. So uh, recently, actually, it was about about a month ago or so, there was an article that um, that I saw about silly putty. Mm -hmm. Some scientists in a laboratory somewhere um, added some graphene to silly putty, the kind that you buy at the toy store, and then. Uh, put a uh, put a little blob of silly putty, slapped it onto your skin anywhere on your skin. Mm -hmm. Add a wire to it, to a, a to a a readout meter, and suddenly you've got a way with silly putty to tell what your blood pressure and your heart rate are. Wow. Right, let's keep going. Um, strongest material known to man. Yeah. So two hundred. <laughs> Two to three hundred times stronger than steel. So, among other things, um, what that means is that you could you could make a make a building, for example, in a very very different way. So about uh, about a month ago, I guess it was in the first week of January, there was a, an announcement by a team of scientists at MIT who had built a three dimensional form of graphene uh, using a specific structure of uh, of the three-dimensional material and um, this the, the three-dimensional material that they made 
was uh, took up far far less um, physical space than um, it was essentially um, it was essentially graphene interspersed with air, mm-hmm. and it took up far less um, actual physical space than steel would take up. It was twenty times stronger than steel and five percent as light as steel. Wow! Right, and because as you said a minute ago. Graphene is inherently elastic. Um, it would do a far better job at creating an earthquake-proof building than steel would be. Shock absorbers for your car, made out of a graphene material, would mm-hmm. be—you, it would be a very different kind of shock absorber. But you can imagine what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Well, my mind is kind of blown. I mean, I feel like you could, you could, you could make your car. You can make the battery that runs it, yeah. and then you could get in it and drive away in it. <laughs> that is, that's actually true. So, what would you what would you need? Um, you, well, you'd need um, you need some kind of fuel. Um, a perfect kind of fuel for a car like that might be solar power. Mm-hmm. Graphene, uh, because it's uh, it conducts electricity so so well, is potentially the best possible way to make a solar panel. Right. Oh wow. Okay. So. Much more efficient. You could put a solar t- panel on top of that car and collect enough solar panel. It would be so efficient that it would collect far more solar energy than an ordinary, previously ordinary and, and prevalent um, solar panel. And it could potentially uh, run the little electric motor that drives the car. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we're talking about are all things that act- actually haven't been done yet. They're all in potential. And right. that's, that's what I want to kind of emphasize here. Um, the, the carbon trifecta is all about what is possible. And so um, it's important to kind of keep this on the ground. Right. Um, there have to be, there, there, there are a whole set of technical and logistical challenges that we have to solve um, and scientific challenges. Uh, uh, challenges that we have to solve in order to know how to use graphene most effectively. We know it has all of these amazing properties and could potentially be used for all kinds of amazing things. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a conscious collaboration among a lot of people who come from a lot of different areas. In some ways, it's the ultimate uh, challenge for how do you create global collaboration and service to humanity. But, and, but that's what you're good at. You're well, good at you're good we'll at working out. with networks. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's like that, w- what's yeah, your yeah, role yeah. within the because you've you've done this before. Right. You you understand yeah. networks. You worked at Microsoft in the early days. Right. And networks has kind of been your thing. It is. It's it's. Uh, I'm incredibly attracted by by the whole concept of networks and the power of networks and the ability of networks. The um, you know, I was part of creating the Microsoft Developer Network, which, quite frankly, at the beginning, Microsoft thought of as, as a um, as a great way to get out developer information, a one-way street out to developers. But the word network was in our name, and so you know, rel- relatively quickly, uh, the people on the team started thinking, well, wait a minute, what if it really were a network? And a network means a lot of people are collaborating and communicating and contributing to the sex success of each and all each one of us and all of us. So 
my uh, job title, I'm the first employee of the Carbon Trifecta, and my job title is direct, Director of Network Orchestration. And um, I actually stole that uh, title from a friend of mine, um, a guy named Barry Leibert, who wrote a book on the, uh, titled The Network Imperative. And it's about the, the way that networks are transforming American and global business and the power of networks um, as a business model. Um, Barry uh, published his book just uh, last last year um, with uh, Harvard Harvard Business Review, and and uh, and he's the uh, consultant to lots of business uh, sizable businesses that are really beginning to be focused on the power of networks and how uh, networks add value to any company's bottom line. Um, actually, this this is a kind of interesting. Um, the thesis of Barry's uh, book is that that there are essentially four business models that characterize um, companies in the global economy now. Um, the first are companies that make things, factor, you know, with factories and you know, sell physical things into a market. The second are companies that um, deliver services um, to other people and to other organizations. The second, or, or rather the third model is companies that create technologies that are then used by other companies. And the fourth are network orchestrators. So a network orchestrator, um, you know, you know, obvious examples that we all know about are Airbnb and Facebook and and Google and so on. Those are all companies that entirely focus on the power of the network as the place that they create value and and where they derive value from. But increasingly, other companies to be successful are going to to have to adopt the model the business model of networks in order to be successful. So, so Ford Motor Company, for example, um, for all of its um, life has been a company that made things in factories and sold them into a market. But increasingly, Ford is transforming itself into a network orchestrator. And its uh, business model for the future will be, rather than selling cars, selling transportation services into networks of consumers, who are all then part of the model of creating value. So um, uh, network orchestration is what I think it's got to be all about. It's got to be a skill that we all have and uh, and will be at the heart of the success of the trifecta. And so in your role, you're networking with these. Um, yeah, who, who are you networking with? Well, we're just starting right now. Mm -hmm. um, the nonprofit work. Um, literally just came into existence at the first of this year. Uh, but the, the target will be to um, reach out to and create collaborations among people on a global scale um, who are um, key parts of this vision. So companies that are, are uh, creating 3D printers and are using 3D printing, printing in, in additive manufacture in new kinds of really interesting ways. Are, are an obvious uh, constituency mm -hmm. for this network. Um, there are there are lots of uh, of uh, scientific laboratories doing R and D research around the world. Billions of dollars within the last five years have been spent on graphene R and D in countries around the world. A couple billion dollars in China alone. A couple billion dollars in the European Union. Uh, the UK, where graphene was first discovered, um, several hundred million dollars, and in the United States as well. So there are lots of researchers focused on 
um, how can we take advantage of the, of the properties of graphene? But those researchers until now haven't been focused on the CO2 connection so because it hasn't been available. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we want to make um, we want to reach out to all those folks and say, well, here's a really interesting idea uh, about how the patterns of social change can be enabled and encouraged by uh, by understanding the possibility here. So so companies um, in the 3D printing space, companies in the graphene technologies space, um, um, manufacturing companies, uh, coal-fired generating plants, gas-fired generating plants, all of those people are potentially part of this um, part of this collaboration. So you can see we have a lot of work ahead uh-huh. of us and it can't possibly be just me. Uh, there are lots of, of uh, people already engaged um, who have been thinking about this problem for for several years now as part of the FIRE conference and the strategic news service community. So is there anything that just the regular listener can do to move the carbon trifecta forward at this point? Well, well not yet, but in the, in the very near future, we're going to, you know, one of the first things that we'll do is uh, start out with a Kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. uh, because we believe that, that crowdfunding of social innovation is really an important part of how something like this moves forward. Um, but beyond that, for this to succeed, it can't just be a few people with some companies or some technologies uh, talking to each other. It needs to become a a, a real global story that right. millions of people are aware of and excited about and pushing for their companies, their uh, governments, um, their institutions, their communities uh, to, to join in. So the first so thing they can do is share this story. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and start building step one right. of the, what is it, the theory of compassion? Building the awareness. Awareness, right. The grand unified theory of right. compassion. We need, to, we need to, step one is the awareness. I think so, yeah. Awareness times compassion times networks equals a flourishing planet. Great. Well, thank you for your time. This is extremely exciting, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you from the Carbon Trifecta. Yeah. And I hope so. Everyone, um, I, will, I will put up some links and some notes and connect you to... Andrew's website and um, and ho- hopefully you are as excited as we are about this and we can start sharing sharing the message right on all right thanks so much I appreciate your help here thank, yeah thank you it's been a joy okay we did it what'd you think of that that was insane I mean my mind is still blown by this conversation and that it's not that far out of reach. So as I said in the beginning, we need to help Andrew get the story out and get the carbon trifecta on the global map and get people aware of this as an opportunity so that um, they can gather, you know, all the, all of these institutions and educators and 3d printers and, coal manufacturers and polluters and get everybody working together to stop the carbon emissions immediately and and to see what we can do with this graphing product. Another thing too, go check out Andrew's 
Wikipedia page because he has done a lot of amazing things and there's no way that I can even scratch the surface of what Andrew's accomplished in his vocational career. So just do yourself a favor and go check out his Wikipedia page. He's a really, really interesting person and has done some amazing things. So yeah, just type in Andrew Himes in Wikipedia and, and you'll you'll get to the right place. Okay, before we part ways one more time, check out chiesty.org, C-H-E-A-S-T-Y dot org for if you're in the Seattle area and you want to come pull some weeds, plant some trees, build some trails, check out the show notes at lyman.space slash emerging future, L-I-M-E-N dot space slash emerging future. The previous show episodes and their descriptions and their notes are also on that same page. So if you missed anything, any uh, of the previous episodes, you can go back and check those out. And if you want to become a patron of the show, you can check out the patreon.com slash emerging future page and you can become a patron there. All right, everybody. That's it. I hope you enjoyed Andrew as much as I did. We'll talk to you soon.